I so hate to, to end what's happening right now, but if you would find your way back to your seat but remain standing, um, we are going to read scripture together. So if you would um, stand with me. We're going to be um, in Psalm 51. My name is Katie, by the way. Welcome. Um, Psalm 51, uh, verses 1 through 9. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sin and blot out all my iniquity. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Amen. Thank you, Katie. Good morning. You guys look like you walked through a little bit of smoke this morning. Hey, my name's Adam, and I get to open scripture with you, and I am not a recruiter for the Salvation Army. <laughs> I promise you. I do happen to work for the Salvation Army as well, and um, I don't know where he went, um, but just wanted to affirm Phil. Um, spent a lot of years working with him and have seen the journey he just kind of laid out for you in his heart, kind of firsthand of what God is doing and, and excited for him. And we'll be excited to see what this next journey looks like for him. Uh, but I'm also excited to be with, with you today in Open Scripture. We are in our last installment of the God Save Summer series. And it has been uh, pretty incredible looking at some of these stories, classic stories or maybe obscure stories from the Old Testament uh, that we, we don't always look at, and um, they're all stories of, of God stepping in and saving when only God could save. Stories where the, the enemy is too great, the scenario is beyond human ability, it's beyond human vision, and in the midnight hour at the last moment, God steps in and does what only God can do, and his people are delivered from their adversaries. We've seen God's people fighting giants, fighting wars, armies. And today, in this last installment, we're gonna look at another adversary that God needs to save us from. And it's the adversary that we see when we peer into the mirror. How God saves us from the mistakes and devastation we can actually invite into our own lives. We're going to be looking at um, a character that, that has already come up in this series before, and there's a lot written about this character and um, a lot of their writing in the book of Psalm, and this is King David. I love King David's story, and I love King David because he's kind of erratic and kind of all over the place, and through the Psalms that we get to read that he wrote, we get the full vent of human emotion, right? 
We get to see what it's like for people experiencing the human condition of brokenness, of being faulty, but yet loving their God and being after their heart. We get to see this experience played out. And certainly we will in this story today. Uh, so if you've got a Bible, make your way to 2 Samuel 11 or your Bible app, or take a look at the gigantic screen that's gonna be behind me. And as you're turning there, I'm gonna pray for us for a moment. Father, uh, thank you for today. Thank you that your word is living, that it's truth, that it meets each and every one of us in this space online, that it meets us exactly where we are. God, that you invite us to walk with you and to journey with you, to have living waters from your word. And so I pray today that you captivate our attention for the next few moments, that we would bring our full self present, that we would be listening for your prompt, your leading, so that we can obey and follow after you. Father, we thank you for this day. We love you, and with hearts full of expectation, we say amen. So David, um, I'm gonna do a little bit of brief history to set up David's story from his call to when he becomes the second king of Israel. Uh, There is a king already in place. His name is uh, Saul. Saul is the the king that is selected by the people of Israel. God's intent for these people was actually for he himself to be their king. But there came a point where they were asking, they were grumbling, they wanted a king, they wanted someone, and so God allowed them, and they picked Saul. Now, the reasons they picked Saul were fairly obvious. It says in Scripture that he stood head and shoulders above everyone else, He had military wherewithal. He was a good commander. He was a great soldier. He was the people's obvious choice. And so Saul becomes king, and and in his kingship, he missteps, and he's faltering, and it's clear that God is going to raise up another king. And so God is choosing a man named David. At this time, he's a young boy, and the selection process starts with a prophet named Samuel going to a man named Jesse saying, God has said one of your sons is going to be the next king of Israel. And so Jesse begins to bring his sons before this prophet and parade them, starting with the oldest, and son after son go by. And the prophet says, no, this isn't the one. This isn't the one. And then they get to the last son who isn't even invited into this party. He's out in a field tending sheep and they bring him and it's David. And the prophet says, this is the man who God has chosen, has anointed to be king. And he pours oil on him and he prays over him and he is going to be the next king of Israel. Well, from this point, David's renown begins to grow. He has military feats. He's well-liked. His, his, his popularity is growing with people, and, and, and it is known that he is going to be the next king. And, and as this is happening, Saul, the current king, begins to get jealous. There's even a story where, where people are doing like a song or a chant saying, Saul, Saul has conquered thousands, but David has conquered tens of thousands. So this doesn't go well with Saul, obviously, he gets jealous and he begins to pursue David's life with the intent of murdering him. And, and you can read about this in, in 1 Samuel 24, this amazing story where, where Saul is actually delivered into David's hand. They meet in a cave and Saul doesn't know he's there. David cuts a piece of his garment off to show them, I've spared your life because I honor you because I want to honor God. And eventually Saul passes. He loses a a military battle and he dies. 
And in 2 Kings 2, David becomes king of Judah, the southern part of Israel. And then in chapter 5, he becomes the king of Israel. This young man taken on this journey, doing all these amazing things that God has done from his life. Victory to victory. Amazing story to amazing story. And then we get to 2 Samuel chapter 11. This is a story we're going to pick up on now today. Starting in verse 1. It says, In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out to the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Amorites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. Now one evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of his palace. From this roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to go get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanliness. When she went back home, the woman conceived and sent a word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So this journey that David's on, where he's God-selected, a man after God's own heart, we read, victory after victory, finds himself at the time when kings are meant to be at war. He doesn't go. And he's walking around the roof of his palace. He sees a woman. He lusts for this woman, finds out that she's married, and yet still sends his servants to bring her to him and he sleeps with her, knowing that she's married, knowing that she's obviously not his wife, and she becomes pregnant. Suddenly, everything that David has faced, giants, a lion, a bear, armies, all these ad 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 adversaries that God has delivered into his hands, he is now confronted with the mess of his own decisions. He is chosen a provision for himself. He has chosen a pleasure for himself that is outside the command of God, that's outside the nature of God. The word that, that scripture uses for this is sin. Sin is talked about all through scripture. And, and, and in my mind, the simple definition of sin are things that are outside the nature of God. When we're confronted with anger and we take into our own hands the resolve outside the nature of God, we're, we're sinning. When we're confronted with our needs and things that we want and we step outside of what God has provided, the way that he has provided, we, we choose something outside of his nature and it produces sin. And the thing that we, we can see in scripture, we certainly see it in this story and I, I have a feeling we've experienced this in our life, sin impacts us deeply and it impacts those around us, bringing devastation, bringing pain, bringing hurt. So David has done this. He's made this choice to provide for himself something that God has not provided outside the nature of God. And now he's made a mess. This woman's pregnant. Well, that's gonna be hard to keep a secret. Her spouse is away at war that's gonna be hard to explain. And so David is confronted with, I've made this decision, I've made this mistake, now what do I do? This is what he does, picking up 
in verse 6. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to David, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left his place, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance of the palace with his master's servant and did not go down to the house. David, confronted with his sin, confronted with this decision he makes, says, I've got a plan. I know how to fix this. I'm going to send for Bathsheba's husband. And, and I'm going to guise it as, oh, I, I need to hear how the war is going. And, and while you're here, go to your house. Get comfortable. I'm sure your wife misses you. And his plan is, oh, they'll, they'll sleep together. And that's where the baby's going to come from. Everyone will know that. And, and problem solved, no issue. This man Uriah, though, does not go to his house. He sleeps on the steps of the palace. And then in verse 11, it says, Uriah then said to David, the ark of Israel and Judah are staying in tents. And my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do this thing. Dang it, Uriah. I had a plan, had this all covered up. This wasn't gonna be a problem. But Uriah comes, and suddenly we see this contrast where Saul took issues and matters into his own hands and stepped outside the nature of God and was jealous and angry at David because he was a man after God's own heart. Now these rules have changed. Now Uriah is reflecting back to David honor and integrity and wanting to follow after God's will. And David finds himself in the place of moral deficit of lying, of covering for himself. We, we know that temptation, right? We know the temptation when, when we've made a mistake, when we've done something that we know we were not supposed to do, something that we've done over and over, and we find ourselves doing it again, and we're confronted with what to do with it. We, we've been in that transition point before, right? This, last week, I had a, a little situation at my work. I was, um, we, we, we do get collection checks um, or, or gifts, donor checks that come in and, and we process them. And our processing system is, um, don't tell me when I said this, but it's kind of a nightmare. It's, it's centralized and we have to, to put things in envelopes and send them to this place in California. They do all the processing. And, and so it's a complex system and we don't have an administrative assistant. We didn't yet, we just hired one. So I was doing that role and my role, processing checks and doing this kind of stuff, which isn't ideal for our organization for me to be doing that, I'll just tell you. And, and it takes about three weeks. And so we had this older gentleman who began to send me these emails because he sent in a check and it wasn't clearing and it wasn't clearing, I kept telling them, Sorry, sir, it takes several weeks, it takes some time. And, and it had gone on and on and on to the point where we had decided it was lost in the mail. That happens, right? People lose things. Lost in the mail, the check is gone, no one's fault. These things just kind of happen and I'm going about my day and I open up my locked file cabinet and do you know what I found in there? A check that I had forgotten to mail. Now, I didn't commit adultery or murder anyone, but for a nonprofit, losing a donor check is up there pretty high. And I thought for a moment, 
maybe it did get lost in the mail. I see a paper shredder over there. I see a way out of this that wouldn't really cost me very much. We know this feeling of taking things into our own hands. We know what it produces in our hearts. Now, if you're wondering, I didn't shred the check. I have a very uncomfortable meeting tomorrow. <laughs> Uriah is not going to play along. He's too honorable. So David, confronted yet again with a deeper layer of this sin, makes this, this decision in verse 14. So in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah in the front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and he'll die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah in the place where he knew the strongest defenses were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men of David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. So David's decision is to keep covering and keep covering. Because Uriah, I had him come, but he didn't sleep with his wife, so now I can't escape this in that way. But, it, but if I have Uriah killed as the king, graciously, I can, I can take his widow and she can be my wife. And, and then there's context for this baby and, and I'll get out of it. And, and so he keeps deviling down and making this decision and it's getting worse and worse. Because now the woman, Bathsheba, who likely had no choice in the matter, who likely was on a roof bathing because that's what they did, was not trying to entice a king, was not trying to be unfaithful to her husband, had servants show up and take her to the king and probably was forcibly made to sleep with him. Now she's pregnant and she's a widow. Her husband has been murdered and we read other people because of this disaster of trying to kill the soldier, other soldiers have fallen and all of this rests at the feet of David. Decision after decision, mess after mess that he has made. And now a woman has lost her husband. Soldiers have died and it's an absolute wreck. And this is the point of the story that unexplicably God's grace shows up for this man. This is the point of the story where we see this side this obscene side of God's grace that David has not gone too far. David has not forgotten. In verse one in chapter 12, it says this, the Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. That's the most Portland scene I can vaguely imagine. He loves this little lamb. It drinks from his cup. It sleeps in his arms. It's his treasure and it's precious to him and it's all he has. 
Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. This is a parable that this prophet is telling David. Here's how David responds. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he has done such a thing. He has no pity. Isn't it fascinating how offensive our sins look committed by other people? Isn't it fascinating how when, when I witness people do things, the very things that I've done myself, it seems so much more offensive I, I love the, dr the drama of this story. David is stepping perfectly into this trap. A story about this man whose one possession that he loved dearly with all his life being taken by someone who's being abusive and has so much more. So this famous line from the story comes, then Nathan said to David, you are that man. The one who you just condemned to death the one who you now burn with anger because what they did, you are that man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hands of Saul. I gave you your, mas your, your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I have given you all of Israel and Judah. And if all of this has been too little, I would have given you even more. So why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Amorites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. David is confronted by this prophet is called to an account for what he has done. We could interpret this story as, as, as being harsh, as being difficult, being judged. That's actually an amazing gesture of grace that God sends his prophet to this man who's made this series of disastrous mistakes that has hurt people, that has put people in the ground and instead of allowing him to stay there, he confronts him with truth. And yet again, David is put at an intersection. He keeps choosing the turn where he provides for himself. He fixes this for himself. The mistake that he made, he can remedy by his decision-making using his power. And over and over again, that is left to folly and disaster. And we know that in our lives. When we choose the tools within our hands to deliver us from something that only God can deliver us from. He's at this intersection. And this time, he chooses a different route. He chooses repentance. Repentance is the means by which we get to experience the power of God and his saving power to save us from the decisions that we've made from the folly that we've engaged in, from the sin that we so easily find ourselves entangled in. This 
This word repentance is a, a pretty robust word that, that doesn't always translate into our setting. Usually in our setting, when we think about the idea of repentance, it gets reduced down to the word, I'm sorry. But it's, it's far more robust than that. Repentance is firstly the recognition of a mistake. That there's actual sorrow and regret that I'm experiencing because of the mistake that I have committed. Scripture tells us in John chapter 16, 7 and 8, this is Jesus uh, teaching his disciples before he's about to face the cross and, and will be put to death, resurrected, and ascend back to heaven. He says this to his disciples. But very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove the world to be wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. One translation says that when he comes, when the Holy Spirit arrives, he will convict the world of sin. The God's Spirit is moving on the face of this earth, interacting and engaging with our hearts. And like the prophet Nathan coming to David and saying, you are this man, you are seen. The Holy Spirit sees into every corner of our hearts and convicts us when there are corners of our hearts that are concealing these things that are outside the nature of God. The thing about sin, when it exists in our hearts, right? Outside the nature of God, when it's allowed to remain in the corners and the darkness of our hearts, it, it begins to grow and it takes on a voice. And this voice works and works and works and chips away at our identity as sons and daughters of God. It begins to rewrite our identity, right? That, that's, that's what shame is. It's a belief in something about myself that is inherently broken and flawed and cannot be redeemed. Yet the Holy Spirit is searching, looking into our hearts, wanting us to have full life, to experience full freedom and to experience the love and light of Christ in every aspect of our hearts. And so he convicts us. It's the beginning of repentance. And then repentance is a change of belief. The New Testament word, the Greek word uh, for repentance that we read it is actually defined as a turning away from and a turning to something else. Metanoia, this, this idea that, that, that when we repent, we're not just saying sorry, we're turning away from a belief and turning towards another belief. When David looked at Bathsheba, there was a belief in his heart that I can't be satisfied or happy without having this woman. And it was a faulty belief that I need to step outside of the commands of God and the will of God to provide for myself something that I need. And the repentance is turning away from that faulty belief to the belief that God is my provider, that he's a good shepherd, he's a good father, he cares for my life. He knows what I need before I can even utter the words. He's good, he's in control, and he can be trusted. Repentance is a change in a belief, and repentance is a release of debt between us and God. When we engage in sin, these things outside of his will, outside of his nature, it puts us in a separation 
between us and God. Right? The, the, the classic Romans uh, road that Romans 3, we've all sinned. We've all stepped outside the nature of God. And then Romans 6, because of that, we are separate from God and experiencing death. And his spirit is convicting us. And through the means of forgiveness, we are made new. And what was a debt is now satisfied. Second Corinthians 5 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. This is repentance. And it's the means by which we get to experience the God who saves, being present in our life. So David is confronted. Everything is known. It's clear that God has spoke to this prophet. He's even condemned himself in the story that he judged the rich ruler. It's all out there. And this is his repentance that we read at the beginning. This is Psalm 51. It's a Psalm written by David in response to this situation, this disaster, this mess that he has created. Verse one says, have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, plot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I done what is evil in your sight so that you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Recognition. God, I, I've done this. I am guilty. You are justified in your verdict against me. Recognition. God, I, I need your unfailing love. I need your great compassion to blot this out because as I've tried to blot this out, it's like a fire that's spreading and spreading and bringing pain and devastation to everyone around me. Recognition. He continues, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in the secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me, I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness and let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. God, wash me with your power. Wash me with, with, with hyssop. Hyssop's a, a flower, it's very similar to lavender. It has a sweet smell. And when you wash something and, and you want it to smell clean and fresh, you wash it with hyssop. He's saying, God, I've dirtied my soul. Wash me. Make the fragrance of my heart a pleasing aroma to you and to people around me. Cleanse my heart. Make me clean. Create in me a pure heart, O oh God and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me away from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. And then 16, it says, you do not delight in sacrifices or I bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifices, O oh God, are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. I'm gonna invite our, our team to come back up. 
We're going to engage in, in communion here. Um, this communion represents Christ's blood spilled, his body crucified, so that we can engage God's power through the act of repentance. And as I read David's prayer before God, it's, it's prophetic in its nature in that he says, God, you, you're not actually looking for sacrifices, for burnt animals. You don't delight in these things. What you want is our hearts surrendered and broken before you. We're going to come during worship here and, and, and take communion. And my invitation for us as we're coming to the end of this God Save series and we've seen his character displayed over and over and his willingness to step into the human condition, into the brokenness, into the places where we cannot save ourselves and do what only he can do. That is what this table represents. It is a physical icon that points towards the power of God to save and to restore you and me. And in 1 Corinthians 11, we're, we're invited into this process before we come to the table to search our hearts with God's spirit that's roving the earth, looking and peering into each and one of our hearts, convicting us. And that as we come to this table, we come with repentance in our hearts. That we come recognizing we all too often make a mess and we can completely identify with David we cannot fix what is broken, but we can come to a loving Father who has the power to save. The team's gonna sing, and, and as you are ready, I invite you to come with repentance on our lips, guided by the Holy Spirit and partake in communion. Uh, Father, thank you. Um, God, thank you that you allow these stories to be in your word that it's not just the stories where things go well, where people make the right choice, where everything is, is good. And it's the stories of, of pain and devastation and the effects of sin when we, when we choose to step outside of your, your provision, your word, your authority. God, I thank you that we can read this because we can see ourselves in the story. And like David, we come to you with repentant hearts saying, make us clean. Wash us. God, if we are in a season of, of, of experiences, brokenness over and over, that you would return to us the joy of our salvation. God, help us to let go, to change belief away from the beliefs that we have that lead us to sinful life. Let us experience your life and your love today. Father, we thank you. Amen. Let's worship.